The title of today's talk is Finding Our True Home. The longing to inhabit a place that feels like home is surely familiar to most of us. Problem is that such long longing is not easily satisfied. When searching for a home, we habitually rely on the capacity of the world to provide such a place. Yet often enough, the place that we find turns out to be much less hospitable than we had expected. Maybe the country we picked to call home uh, decided to provide, to choose war as a way of relating to other countries, uh, familiar. <laughs> or maybe the roof of the house that we moved into is saturated with leaks, irreparable leaks. <clears throat> or maybe our relationship with our closest friends has become plagued with unsurmountable incompatibilities. When these things happen, we can, of course, look for another country, another house, another circle of friends. And so, the search for an authentic home goes on and on, keeping us on tender hooks. Are we doomed to find ourselves in such a situation? Not really. But in order to change things, we must come to realize that our habitual insistence in finding a veritable home out there, while bypassing the in here, is essentially misguided. This is the central topic of today's talk. The talk consists of Two parts. In the first part, I'll highlight the fallacies of our habitual search for home, that is, a search restricted to the outer world. And then, in the second part, I'll explore you, I'll invite you to explore you, so I'll invite you to explore what happens when we carry out the search while paying full attention to our inner world as well. So, let me talk about habitual search, what we habitually do. Let's start by considering the process of identifying our homeland, which is usually a given when we continue to reside in the country of our birth. In other cases, as in the case of Raquel and me, shifting our residence to another country also involves shifting our sense of country, of, of home, to our new country. 
the, the real problem is that our habitual identification with whatever country we choose as our homeland is that it also becomes a cornerstone of our identity. <clears throat> Thus widening our separation from whoever, be between us and whoever falls in the category of foreigner. Take the promise of our new president to make America great again, which is really an invitation to puff ourselves up while making sure that the rest of the world remains small. But take what's happening today with the word, the word homeland, at least for me, Whenever I hear homeland, it, the sequel is security. The sequel pops up automatically as, as an attachment, given the current prominence of the Department of Homeland Security. And thus, I end up enclosing the idea of homeland in the equivalent of barbed wire. Not a proper enclosure for our true home. At other times, instead of focusing on, on the home and the house we live in, um, we focus our search for home on our social circle which also includes families and friends. Fine, that's fair enough. Problem is that much as in the case of our homeland, our social circle easily becomes a cornerstone of our identity. We tend to use it to highlight our social status. In doing so, our inner being is left behind, and without it, no sense of home is possible. On a more concrete level, we tend to identify the house we live in as our home. It, it makes sense, really. Even our language we often use the words house and home interchangeable, interchangeably. Problem is that habitually a house is seen primarily as something physical, made up of bricks, tiles and mortar and the like. Our mind highlights its limits, its confines, the walls of the house, the limits of the property where it sits. We judge our house primarily by its facade, by the way it looks. Our house becomes a piece of real estate, connected to the market rather than to our heart.
As a piece of real estate, our house is constantly demanding that we make improvements to it. Of course, it's in general okay to make improvements, surely. But not to let this demand become the centerpiece of our relationship to our house. Otherwise, we'd relegate our house to being just a physical stage on which to play our role in life. Of course, as we will see in the second part of this talk, our house can also connect to our heart. But that connection is only possible if you allow the gates of our innerness to open up. Otherwise, you're stuck with a container. That is the stage in which we play our life. While ignoring its contents, that is the very experience of living. As a footnote to the role of our house as a stage on which we play our life. Let me add that our work, work, workplace can also play that role. At times, in fact, the, the workplace becomes a predominant stage, the predominant arena for our life. As it was the case for me when I was a scientist. For me, it was not just one laboratory, but a whole series of successive ones throughout the world. In them, I had a strong sense of continued ownership. Not ownership of the labs themselves, but ownership of my line of work, which I treated as a territory I owned in which, and in which no trespassing was allowed. Ownership, sure, but no intimacy. Science, as we usually conduct it, leaves, leaves little room for innerness, if any. So, so far I've talked about our habitual search for home in the context of our homeland, our social circle, our house, and our workplace. Finding no true home in the process, in the habitual process. Next step could be to find our home in our body. Eh? How about that? Does it qualify us at home? Sure it could. But there are problems here too, because we tend to be overwhelmingly concerned with what it looks like. Eh? Yeah. Without imagining the mirror. We prioritize the body's boundaries, its skin. Once again, it's a container rather than the contents. We look at the cocoon and forget what thrives in it.
Not that we are totally indifferent to the bodily contents, but that that we habitually only pay attention to them, to the contents, when something goes wrong. Period. Finally, of all the sites in which we could locate our home, our mind would seem to be the most flexible, most malleable location, unconstrained as it is by obvious physicalities. But is it really flexible? Not habitually. As most of us know from first-hand experience, our mind often gets caught in entrenched patterns of operation. This Patterns are habitually set in place by our thirst for predictability in life, which includes trying to fabricate whoever we wish to be. In other words, in order to avoid uncertainties, our mind keeps going round and round a set of well-trodden scenarios through relentless planning and programming, getting lost in this papancha. And all of this prevents the mind from feeling at home in itself, from feeling at home wherever it actually is. No wonder that meditation practice presents such a challenge to the ordinary mind. Meditation threatens the persistence of our patterns of avoidance and invites us to go instead to a place where reality prevails. An alternative that we will consider, we'll examine in the second half of this talk. So, in sum, habitually, whenever we try to locate a home for ourselves, our ingrained tendencies let us, lead us to restrict our focus to out, the out there while we're like neglecting the in here. But this habitual search is doomed to fail since there can, there can be no true dwelling without a dweller, to connect with it. So, now, in the second half of this talk, I'll explore the way in which the dweller can connect with the dwelling, with the home. Let, let me start by sharing with you an experience I had some time ago, a personal experience. In the early 1980s, I made India my home for a whole year. And there, I often used a bicycle to go from one place to another. One day, 
I was, as I was ready to embark on a trip from Oroville to Pondicherry, somewhere in India, I started, it started to rain torrentially. So, what did I do? I put on a tiny little bathing suit here. <laughs> put my backpack in a plastic bag on the bicycle rack and took off under the drenching rain. In the process I got totally soaked. Not just by the rain, but also by the experience of merging with the world around me. Everybody else around me was also wet, very wet. And, and the Indians are not dressed very heavily, not in this time of the year, anyway, in that time of the year. To truly inhabit India during the monsoon season, I had to allow myself to get drenched. Something similar happens wherever it is that we are dwelling. We need to allow the dwelling to inundate our home if it is, sorry, our consciousness if it is to become our true home. So let's go over once again the potential locations of our home, but this time focusing not just on the dwelling, but particularly on the attitude of the dweller and the, on the relationship between the two of them. Let's start with our homeland, which can, we can now define simply as the land in which we feel at home. Should our feelings change, then the country to consider our home is bound to change as well. Our deepest feelings are based on love, not on hate as some politicians would like us to make us believe, like to make us believe. Love not just for the people inhabiting the land but the whole, for the whole ecosystem that the land is part of. Love for the soil, the waters, the air, the plants, the animals, and the humans that are part of that system. In the Buddhist tradition, the richness of our interactions with each other is celebrated by the legend of Indra's net. A peculiar net that was that's supposed to be hanging on the outer walls of the palace of the god Indra. In it, in that net, translucent jewels were anchored at each intersection of the strands. The jewels were positioned in such a way yes, magically perhaps, that each jewel re reflected all others at the same 
time. When you saw one, you saw them all. The jewels were meant to represent us humans. And the allegory implies that whenever we connect with one, we connect with all. Surely this allegory is bound to sound a bit too ambitious if meant to apply to the whole of humanity. But it may resonate with our actual experience in connecting with our social circles. Take, for instance, our Sangha, that is us here today. Time and time again, we connect deeply with each other through our sharing and through our silence. But take any other circle in which we may participate, be it the circle of friends, family, neighbors, fellow workers, whatever. Circles in which we participate not in order to cultivate an identity, a separate identity, but because they can act as a chamber of resonance for our being. At times, hopefully very often, our resonances will be about love. <coughs> about what in the language of the Buddha in Pali is called metta. At other times, these resonances may be about the difficulties we have with each other. <coughs> about acknowledging those difficulties and eventually either over overcoming them or learning to accept them. <coughs> Whichever the case, we can practice to be true, truly at home in our circle by connecting from the depth of our being. And then there's the house we live in. In the context of looking for our true home, what matters is not its architecture, its bricks and mortar and the like. What matters is whether it's able to incarnating our connectivity with daily life. Whether it's cap capable of act as a resonance chamber for our feelings about the world surrounding us. And in the process, contribute to make us feel as part of that problem, of that world. Sorry. Let me reminisce for a moment about my own experience. In the course of growing up, my parents' home in Buenos Aires, where I grew up in Argentina, became very much more theirs than mine. And I was glad to leave it behind when I came to study at the University of Michigan. I mean, I had some some memories and 
send them loving letters here and there, but I was glad to be beyond that. There, the University of Michigan, where I came to study, I eventually moved into a cooperative house called Michigan House, which became very much of a true home for me. You know, cooperative house, very cheap, paid one dollar a day room and board. This is 1940-something, but still, <laughs> still one dollar a day. <coughs> yeah. Feeling at home had nothing to do with its comforts of the comforts of the house, which were practically non-existent. We all slept in an unheated attic. You know, in Michigan, during the winter, and I came from a tropical, semi-tropical place. I used to cover my whole face with a blanket. I didn't have a hot water bottle of any or anything. Our work, personal working space consisted of a desk for each one anywhere in the house. My, my desk was in a former garage, which had to be heated up, I had to heat up every morning by turning on a wood-burning stove. Rather, my sense of home had to do with living in a context that enhanced my sense of connectivity with the world around. A sense that had been absent for me in the month, month between my arrival in the U.S. and my moving into Michigan House. Yet my ability to connect during those months had remained in abeyance, waiting for the appropriate context to turn it on, and the context was Michigan House. But in fact, let's not forget that living in a house under a roof is not always a requirement to feel at home. It could be the opposite. In fact, that was the case for the Buddha, who lived in, in a palace that his father built for him, and he felt imprisoned in it, no matter how great comforts he had and, and all women surrounding him and all the things that go with that. But he, in fact, left his palace in order to become a houseless mendicant monk and thus find his true home, largely, of course, in his own heart and in his own body. Indeed, all of us, regardless of wherever we are lodged, inevitably occupy our own body as well. What's important here is that we stop our compartmentalizing mania 
and come to understand that our body is inseparable from the ecosystem is embedded in intestinal bacterial flora and all. Within that system, our body has accompanied us all our life. It embodies our history. Thank you, body. Thank you for being home for me all these years. 91 in a couple of months. And thank you, meditation practice for making it possible for me to access this home. One more point about the body as a tool for action. Most of the time, it will act on its own with the guidance of its mind, the mind that's embedded in it. But at other times it may act in collaboration with other bodies. <coughs> Many examples. Let me illustrate this with a moving event, which uh, I read about and took place a few months ago in, on a beach in Argentina, actually. A trio of swimmers found themselves caught by a powerful undercurrent and because of that, were unable to swim back to shore. The lifeguards tried to rescue them, but they also got caught in that current. <clears throat> then, a number of beachgoers who saw that happening formed a human chain, going from the beach, you know, holding hands with each other, that this chain went from the beach to the place where the swimmers were stranded, were caught. And used that human chain to get everybody back to safety. Hooray. And so, time and time again, our bodies can find themselves taking collective action as well. Thus confirming that we inhabit a body, a body, and a home that can be shared. And now, as a sequel of having considered how our sense of homeland, of our circle of friends, our dwelling, and our body can provide settings for enacting a true sense of home. Let us consider how our mind can also provide such a setting, particularly when supported by the practice of meditation. It's not that the practice provides a preordained itinerary, itinerary to find our home. That's not the way. Rather that the practice encourages us to open up to the reality of things, including the reality of a sense of home when it becomes available in the context of our mind. 
This is hard to explain, but let me try to throw some light on what I'm trying to say. By sharing with you an experience I had uh, sometime last January, as I was watching TV, as I often do before going to bed. The show I was watching is called Good Behavior. But when it got interrupted by commercials, I shifted channels and landed on a PBS channel that was rebroadcasting Downton Abbey. On a PBS channel. While PBS does not carry ordinary channels, it also got interrupted. Sorry. While PBS doesn't carry commercials. It, the show got interrupted by fundraising. So, soon I found myself shifting back and forth between good behavior and down to Nabi. You know, press one button and in my TV, you press one button and the remote, and it shifts to the previous channel press it again, choose back to the other channel. Quick, simple. In doing so, in shifting, I realized that the same actress appeared in both shows. In Downton Abbey, she played Lady Mary, a properly behaving member of the English aristocracy. On the, in the other show, she played a, a troublemaker. And in between, and going back and forth between the two, my mind found, found itself visiting, if only for a fraction of a second in the course of the transition, a space that had nothing to do with the roles played by the actors. Not even with whatever role she might play in her private life. Rather, this in-between space, it had a, a magic property. I cannot really explain it. It was an experience, that, the experience that mattered. In this in-between space I visited had to do with myself has, having the experience on what it's like to, to experience to be beyond any role or parameter. To be beyond any role. Just, just like, you know, whatever. You know, my mind discovered that. As an experience, not as a thought. It was like coming into a stage where the, sorry, a space, it was like coming into a space in which there was no stage on which to perform. Neither for the actress, nor for myself. I had the experience of coming into a mind space that welcomed the whole of me and 
in which who, whoever me was felt totally at home. So in closing, let me try to sum up in a few words the essence of today's talk. Namely, that what we need to do in order to find our true home is not to go out looking for it. Why? Because we are already there. Rather, we need to drop our over-consciousness, cautiousness, and open our heart to let our sense of being home penetrate in its, into its inner chambers. So let's sit in silence for a few minutes. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.